If you were to poke your head into a passion play rehearsal at just the right time, you might witness a scene where the disciples are admiring the magnificent, beautiful buildings of the temple and its surroundings. And then they're surprised that Jesus is not impressed. In fact, he has some sobering words for them. And the scene comes from the Gospels. Let me invite you to turn in our Father's Word to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, where this scene is played out. Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, and right at the beginning, verse 1. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are, up, are all about to be fulfilled? And much of the rest of the chapter, Jesus answers the disciples' question. People still trying to interpret Jesus' words differ in their import, how they'll be fulfilled. You've heard me sometimes use an illustration of approaching a mountain range and not being able to distinguish from a distance the foothills from the higher peaks behind. And so it is often with Bible prophecy. From a distance we look and it appears that all is one until we actually get into the mountains and realize, okay, there's partial fulfillment and then there's a final fulfillment. And uh, so it probably is with Mark chapter 13. Uh, we pick up the reading at verse 26. At that time men will see the Son of Men coming in clouds with great power and glory and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens now learn this lesson from the fig tree as soon as it twigs get tender and its leaves come out you know the summer is near even so when you see these things happening you know that it is near right at the door i tell you the truth this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house in charge of his servants, each with his assigned task and tell the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or, in, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Let me begin this morning with a kind of a sort of an apology <laughs> to those of you who came to the watch night service this past New Year's Eve. There were only a handful of us, actually. Um, but the apology is 
Today I'm going to preach the same message I brought that night. Now, it's not unusual for a preacher, myself included, to repeat messages from the past, but I can't think of any time I've done so just six or seven weeks later. But on that occasion, Watch Night 2021, I introduced the watchword for our church for this year, 2022, and brought a message to flesh out that watchword and felt that really the whole congregation needs to hear it. And I need to hear it. And maybe it won't hurt for you to hear it again, those of you who were here. If you Google watch night, most of the sites that will first come up have to do with an African-American church tradition. On the night that, the night before slavery was to be outlawed in the entire British Empire, many slaves in North America went up on the hills and spent the night there watching for the dawn of a new era of freedom. And so watch night services commemorate that. Now if you add Christian Catholic Church to the search bar, uh, you might read about New Year's Eve 1899 when John Alexander Dowie gathered his Chicago congregation to reveal plans for a new city to be built on the shore of Lake Michigan just south of the Wisconsin border, a city for God. Here's how one summarized the occasion. On December 31st, 1899, the congregation gathered for the church's traditional watch night service. Missionaries from as far away as Africa, Australia, Japan, and Korea had returned for the occasion. The Zion white-robed choir sang, and the 26 usual chants, anthems, and prayers were followed by a long sermon and communion. But the focus of everyone's attention was the large 25-foot screen which had been suspended from the ceiling, a map of the world with the words, I will bring you to Zion, hung in front of an elaborate painting of the proposed city. Watch night. Now, I have usually thought of watch night in terms of Mark 13, verse 37, where Jesus says, watch. As one year ends, and we're ready to welcome a new year in an hour or so, we contemplate the possibility that the Lord Jesus could come back in the new year, and he could return in 2022. May it be so. I don't know how many of you, yeah, I do know that many of us were moved by the song set and the hope of eternal life and the return of the king. May it be soon. But, of course, we don't know when that great day will come. No one knows. No one knows. Verse 32 of our text, Jesus says, no one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so it's remarkable that down through the years, Christ followers, some charlatans no doubt, but many who should know better, have predicted the day and the hour of Christ's return. 
1844, on a balmy October evening, 100,000 men, women, and children gathered with an air of expectation, looking, many of them, up to the top of the hill where their leader, William Miller, stood. The man who had spent years studying the prophecies of the book of Daniel and has predicted that Christ will come back at midnight on this day. Well, needless to say, it didn't happen. And uh, as midnight came and went, the crowd slowly, sadly, reluctantly began to disperse. Some who had given up their entire livelihoods on the truth of Miller's words lingered a little bit longer, looking skyward, expecting that any day, any moment, they might see, as the scripture puts it, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. What is especially remarkable to me about this story was that this was the fourth time Miller had predicted the day and the hour of the Lord's return. And people still believed him and followed him. One account notes, fields were left unharvested, shops were closed, People quit their jobs, paid their debts, and freely gave away their possessions with no thought of repayment. So sure were they that Jesus was going to come back that night. Well, whatever else our Lord means by the word watch, he did not mean that we should predict the day or the hour of his return, and nor did he mean that we should watch the signs of the times that you read about in, in Mark chapter 13 and at least narrow down the return of Christ to a particular week or month or year. Some Bible prophecy popularizers avoid predicting the literal day or the hour, but nonetheless assure us that based on the signs that Jesus mentions in Mark 13 and elsewhere, and the intensification of those signs in our own day, that we can be reasonably sure that his return will be in our own time, our own generation. And even this, I believe, is a mistake. The so-called signs of the times in Mark 13 are generic enough to fit almost any generation over the last 2,000 years. And it's doubtful, in fact, whether those signs are intensifying or becoming more frequent as we sometimes hear. For example, in verse 7, Jesus says, when you hear about war, and we who live in a 24-7 news cycle might have the impression that there's more war today than ever before. But historians of warfare would correct us on that. Even though World Wars I and II were exceptionally devastating, there have been other wars earlier in history that were equally costly. The Thirty Years' War in the 1600s, the Manchu-Chinese War, the Taiping Rebellion claimed the lives of tens of millions of people. And when you consider that the population of the world is greater today than it has been in the past, some of those past wars were proportionally more devastating than those in our own uh, memory or lifetime. Quincy Wright, a pioneer researcher in the history of warfare, 
defines a war as any battle involving more than 50,000 soldiers and says by that standard there have been fewer wars, he wrote, in the 20th century than in previous centuries. What about famine? Verse 8. Jesus mentioned famine as a sign of the, uh, the times. And there are popularizers of Bible prophecy who will say famine is more widespread than ever before. And in this they join some environmental and population, zero population extremists who insist that the planet's population is nearing the point where it just will not be able to feed us anymore. And yet agricultural productivity grows. Uh, back when I was in college, Paul Ehrlich, uh, some of you will remember him, the author of Population Bomb, was predicting the end of the world as we know it because of the limitations of the Earth's resources. He predicted that by 1999, famine in the United States would claim tens of millions of lives. Well, yes, there are pockets of hunger, but often it's because of mismanagement, poor supply lines, government corruption, and in other ages, there has been famine as well. The Irish potato famine in the 1800s claimed a million lives. The same century, a hundred million people died of famine in China. Pestilence, we're told, is a sign that the end must be near. AIDS, COVID, but then we forget. The bubonic plague, which in the 15th century decimated Europe. A third of the people along the trade routes died. In certain parts of England, nine out of ten people died. There weren't enough people alive to bury the dead. False prophets, false teachers, apostasy, you'll find those signs in any generation of the church. Our Lord mentions earthquakes in verse 8. Well, Charles Richter, the inventor of the Richter scale, says, one notices with some amusement that certain religious groups have picked this rather unfortunate time to insist that the number of earthquakes is increasing, when in fact it is not. The signs that Jesus mentions are not clues as to the week or month or year that he'll return. They are rather pointers to the tragic brokenness of this world. Pointers to the fact that the fall happened and spoiled God's good creation. Pointers to the fact that one day, one is coming who will make it all right. And these signs are not meant for us to be able to say when it will happen, but for us to long for it to happen. Well, what does it mean to watch? Jesus says, what I say to you, his disciples, he says to everybody, watch. What's he mean? Well, let me give you an illustration and an alternative translation. The illustration is this. Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq War, and after his 300th mission, he was surprised to be given permission to immediately pull his crew together and fly his plane home. So they flew across the ocean to Massachusetts, took a long drive to Pennsylvania. They drove all through the night, and when his buddies dropped him off at his driveway, there was a big banner across the front of the garage 
welcome home dad. Well, how did, how did they know? Nobody had called. The crew themselves had not expected to leave so quickly. And Robin says, when I walked into the house, the kids, half-dressed for school, screamed, Daddy! Susan came running down the hall and through her tears, hugged him. And he said, how did you know? I didn't, she answered. But once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd come home one of these days. We knew you would try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. We're to be ready every day for the return of the king. We're to hope for, long for, look for our Lord's return. We're to be confident that he's coming again. We're to rejoice in his coming again. This is what it means to watch. The alternative translation is from the English Standard Version, which instead of the word watch, uses the translation, stay awake. That captures something of Jesus' meaning in this word. Stay awake. I fear that many Christians sleepwalk through life. Not really awake to the king's priorities. Not watching for opportunities to hasten the day of his return by fulfilling his mission. Sometimes erring in the opposite direction of the prophecy popularizers. Instead of making too much of the signs of the times, they make too little of the signs of the times. When we encounter war and famine and pestilence and false teaching and false prophets and, and earthquakes, we're not to go follow our guru up the hill and look skyward after we've quit our jobs, but we are to take seriously this world that our Father made is broken. And we want to be part of the repair process and long for the return of the king. That's, that's what it means to watch, to stay awake. Which sometimes may take courage. Courage to get up in the morning. Courage to go to work when you'd rather take it easy. Courage to, to coast and stay uninvolved. Which, which brings me to our 2022 watchword. Christian courage is holding on an hour longer while we watch for the return of the king. For a few years now, I've been saying that I think that in the years to come, it's going to require more courage to be a Christ follower in North America. Some of us who are old or middle-aged without any difficulty, can remember that it hasn't always been this way, that there was a time when you didn't have to be particularly brave to be a Christian in our culture. Oh, maybe you had to be brave facing up to a bully. Maybe you had to be brave finding your tongue to bear witness for Christ. Maybe you had to be brave to try some new ministry initiative, some new effort that was going to stretch you. But the culture was not actively hostile toward Christianity and Christians. That's changed. You know that it has changed. And now I think 
that we need this word. Christian courage is holding on an hour longer. Don't worry about strength for tomorrow. Just hold on for an hour longer while we watch for the return of the king. That sentence, which you've seen in the bulletin in recent weeks, pulls together two themes that I want to concentrate on this year. The return of the king and courage. Courage and the return of the king. This coming Advent, November and December, I plan to preach four sermons on the second Advent. Four messages from Thessalonians on the return of Jesus Christ at the end of time. I hope I don't get to preach that series. I hope he comes first. May it be today, we sang a few minutes ago. Amen. You may have noticed that the sermon title in the bulletin is Watch and Blank. Watch and, and what? Watch and work. Verse 34 of Mark 13. Jesus talking about the day, the hour, that even the son doesn't know about, says, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house in charge of his servants, each with his assigned task tells the one at the door to watch. Christ's servants are tasked. We have work to do. Watch and work. I uh, had a parishioner back in Denver who loved Bible prophecy. He had more books on the subject on his shelf than I had on mine. Love to think about it, talk about it, blah, read about it. And, and one day he came to me and he said that he had changed his view on the timing of the rapture. You may be aware that among people uh, who take Bible prophecy seriously, um, there's debate about whether the church will go through an end times period of great tribulation lasting seven years if we can take um, certain biblical ta uh, passages literally, and, and some believe that before the second coming of Christ to judge and to establish his kingdom, he'll come seven years earlier to rapture his church so that they'll leave this earthly scene before this terrible time of testing. Other interpreters believe that the, the rapture of the church and the second coming are a package deal at the end of the tribulation and that Christians can expect to go through this period. So my parishioner had changed his views. He used to hold to what he called the pre-tribulation view, that the church would escape tribulation, but he had come to believe that the church would actually go through the great tribulation. And he went on and on about this change of mind, and I asked him, um, what practical difference is this change of view going to make in your life? He said that he had purchased some land I forget whether it was in Wyoming or Montana, and built an underground home and stocked it with enough food and water for him and his family 
to survive for seven years so that they could that way escape the coming tribulation. You think that's what Jesus would have us do? I think he would have us love God, love neighbor, serve the church, serve our community, bear witness for Christ, disciple our children. There's work to do. Watch and work. One thing I like about Dowie, sidebar. Our church, like any church that's existed for over 100 years, has good and bad in its history. And celebrating the good while not ignoring or excusing the bad can sometimes feel like a, a balancing act. And people may have different opinions as to how well the leaders of the church achieve that balance. I hope that those differences of opinion can be discussed respectfully with an eye toward church unity. Personally, I believe that it is possible to acknowledge that John Alexander Dowie was a flawed man and that some of his theology was flawed and still acknowledge that God used him to achieve some good. So that's the sidebar. Let me finish the sentence. One thing I liked about Dowie is his ambitious energy. He modeled what he envisioned for the Christian Catholic Church, and that is, in his words, people who are at it, at it, always at it. The it being the work, the work of the kingdom. Now, few people have Dowie's energy. I sure don't. I'm told that he only needed four or five hours of sleep a night. I need eight and a half or nine. Wish it were otherwise. But although I don't have his energy, I can, with God's help, resist the temptation that is very strong for some middle-aged or older men to drift, to coast, to sleepwalk into a comfortable retirement. I want to watch and work. How about you? Sometimes courage is needed to do that, not always to face an enemy without, but the enemy within, the comfort-loving, safety-craving flesh. And it takes courage to say, no to the flesh, and yes to the king. So take courage, friends. Let's watch and work. Are you tired? Are you world-weary? Are you angry at what's happening in our culture? Are you afraid for your children and grandchildren? Hang in there. Christian courage is holding on an hour longer while we watch for the return of the king. During the American War of Independence, the Connecticut legislature was in session when the day grew unusually dark, extraordinarily dark. So dark 
that some began to mutter that the day of judgment was upon them and that the legislature should adjourn. Well, one politician stood up and said, I am against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If not, there's no need for adjournment. And if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I therefore insist that candles be brought. Now pray with me. I love the spirit of that politician, Father. Infuse me and these my brothers and sisters with that same ambitious energy. Whatever our limitations may be, physically or psychically, within those which you know best, enable us to watch and work for the glory of Christ whom we love, whom we long to see. And in his name we pray and let all his people say, Amen.